Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tuesdays with Townsend, a podcast from Rivertown Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. My name's Ben Whittinghill. It's my privilege to sit down each week with one of my fellow pastors and dear friends, David Townsend, to discuss questions about challenging issues, questions of faith, and sometimes random topics. Our goal is to serve you as you seek to follow Jesus faithfully in our post-Christian world. Thanks so much for joining us. Tuesdays with Townsend. Good to Hello, see you. Good af- yeah, yeah. Good afternoon. Good to see you. Yeah. All right, dude. So last week, we talked through the truthfulness of the scriptures, dove into the canonization, particularly of the New Testament. And we kind of rushed through at the end um, some of the the reliability of the manuscripts that we have. So I'm going to touch on that just briefly before we dive sure. in. And then today, um, we're going to look at the Old Testament. Um, how can we trust it? How should Christians think about it? There's a lot of uh, confusion, I think, that's kind of been inserted into um, sort of mainstream. So the world has its own thoughts. Um, right. And then even inside of uh, Christian subculture, there's confusion on how we should think about the Old Testament, how how it should be used in our lives. Um, maybe even with particular um, look at the law, but they may be for a later episode, depending on how much time we have. And then sure. we do want to deal with questions that have come in. So um, our buddy Levi uh, asked how we should think about uh, the illnesses or the potential death of a leader like the leader of North Korea, um, Kim jong ill kim jong kim kim jong-un i think yoon i don't know maybe i get get which one (laughs) but anyways so so uh potentially uh sick on his deathbed and he's asking hey how should christians think about this um when a leader that has done much um evil to the world and to his people but we want to put on hearts of compassion and love so how do we think about that rightly uh, as right. believers. so yeah absolutely um so man let's start with uh finishing off where we left off last week and i just want to point people back again to this um tim challies's guide to the bible uh that's been super helpful to me and uh it's rich with illustrations people that are listening won't be able to see this but there's illustrations like this that show the reliability of the manuscript that we have for the new testament so he gives illustrations of um literature that's historical that we rely on and take as fact and how the earliest manuscript that we have for some of these ancient documents um is hundreds of years after the earth, after it was known to have been written. So for example, Homer's Iliad, Iliad and the Odyssey written in 800 years BC. So 800 years before Christ came and the earliest manuscript that we have of Homer's Iliad is from 400 BC. So 400 years after it was written, it's the earliest copy we have, but we have 1700 copies of it. So people would say, look, 400 years later, but it's all, we have 1700 copies of the, of the same document. So seems to be legit and reliable. Uh, 
there's others uh, like Herodotus's um, history written in 480 BC, earliest manuscript was 1500 years later in 900 AD. We only have 109 copies of that and it's taken as a reliable document. The New Testament by contrast. So this is for people just to have in their back pocket to know that the, the New Testament that we hold in our hands is authentic and reliable and um, the, the same as the original. We, the New Testament was written between 50 and 100 AD. The earliest manuscript we have is from AD 130. So you're talking about, you know, within 50 to 80 years of when it was originally written. And we have... And furthermore, within 100 years of the event. Right. Right, right. right. And we have uh, 23,769 known copies of New Testament manuscripts in Latin, Greek, Slavic, Armenian, Coptic, Ethiopian, Syriac... Um, Georgian Gothic, I mean, in all these different languages, all tying close together right to the original um, as, as copies. Uh, and there's no other document in history that can be more verified by just objective evidence as being authentic and real and written that closely. Or the, the, the manuscript having been from a, a time that was that close, A, to the event, to your point, but also to the earliest known writing. Right. So we can rely yeah, on think, the New Testament scriptures. Yeah, and I think, too, um, there's great consensus uh, over, um, with textual critics, right? Those whose uh, aim, their academic aims, their career aims is to critique ancient literature, right? There's a, a large consensus among um, even textual critics that, um, the reliability of the manuscripts is over 99%. Um, and you might see that plus or minus 1%, but um, all would say that it's all scribal error, right? The, the difference is, right, that 1% to 2% perhaps is uh, most likely scribal error because what would happen is a lot of times monks or um, you know, or monastics, right, um, or just scribes in general, they'd be sitting in a room and someone would be uh, verbally reading a, an older manuscript and they would be writing as someone read. Uh, that's typically how transmission happened. Um, sometimes it was uh, with another copy and they were looking and writing, but um, for the most part, it was verbal. And some guy just got a little lazy on the job, you know, and missed a, uh, a punctuation mark or something like that. And furthermore, those discrepancies never change the content of what the message is, is proclaiming. Right. It's usually just something that deals with grammar. It's never anything that totally changes the meaning of the text. Awesome. Yeah, so this same concept is true of the Old Testament. Now, the, the, we talked about this last week. The Old Testament, the, the canonization of those books has never even been in question in, in, among Jews who hold fast to it as Scripture. It's been canonized and recognized as the, the 39 books that are there have been recognized since the last one was written. Um, right. And like 400 years before Jesus came or... 500 years, somewhere in there. Um, but there is um, really moving stuff in this, in this book about how reliable uh, 
the Old Testament, the copies of the Old Testament are. Um, we know the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been found. You might be able to speak to some of that better than I can, but it's amazing how these scribes would have to um, write every word so carefully. And if they made a mistake, they would just throw it out um, and start over again. So um, I have, it says written down here, if a sheet had one mistake, the entire sheet was thrown out. If a sheet was found to have three mistakes, the entire manuscript was thrown out uh, and they would start over. Right. So, yeah. Right. Which is, there was never an intent to err, right? And so, like what I mentioned regarding a scribal error, it, they were always accidental, right? And that's why they were never, it was never like the mischievousness or the evil intent of an individual to change a text, but rather uh, accidents did happen, right? Where, um, because we're, we're not talking about the original authors here, we're talking about transmission, you know, um, of an older document to a fresher document, maybe the maybe the papyrus was getting old and, you know, crumbling or whatever you might have. And so, um, because we don't have original documents, but we have incredibly old documents and the archeological record continues to be expanded as, um, more people and more, uh, universities and organizations invest in, um, uh, these archeological efforts to, to find older texts. And so, uh, back to your first point, when you were giving the comparison to the other ancient texts, uh, we have incredibly old manuscripts, and uh, the vat, the sheer number of manuscripts we have just all point to a reliability within themselves. And so there was never, um, I think, evidence and has not been evidence for someone to intentionally um, like corrupt what we have. Right. So that sort of wraps up some of last week's discussion, people coming to Christians and saying, you can't trust the Bible. The Bible was written by people. And we talked last week about how the Bible attests to itself as being the very word of God. And um, people can check out uh, last week's discussion. But now I think even inside of people that would profess to be Christians, there is confusion on the nature of the Old Testament, um, the nature the the god displayed in the old testament versus the new testament and you hear that argued a lot by people that uh, are not followers of jesus even inside the church there's confusion about what the role of the old testament is in the life of a believer so i want to turn this over to you man what how should christians think about the old testament yeah so i think for critics Right. For those who, you know, the naysayers um, who often cherry pick uh, texts or, you know, individual verses from the Old Testament to say that it's contradictory to the new. Um, for one, I think if you're going to look at anything um, critically, you have to be fair in your assessment and you have to uh, look at the totality of what it's saying um, and really the entire context of what it's saying. So, for one, we, sh we should always be encouraging people and that they, they, they look to see what the Bible says about itself, right? And what does it reveal about itself? Because the New Testament authors certainly found no contradiction with, contradiction with the character or nature of God from the God of Israel and the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and 
the God who has revealed himself as the father of Jesus Christ, the son. So there was no contradiction. There was no disparity. Um, they did not have to jump through hermeneutical hoops or do any kind of uh, linguistic acrobats, acrobatics to, to achieve um, the connection because it was plain to them. And so I think that's the starting place. So um, and to, to kind of bridge, help people bridge the gap, I think it's helpful to look specifically at the law because the law, I mean, by the law, I mean the Mosaic law, right? And specifically the first five books of the Bible. Okay. And so, um, you know, it's, it, you know, also called the Tanakh. And so when, when we're looking at the law, it, for most people, and for whether that you be a, you know, say you're young in the faith or you're questioning Christianity or whatever, whatever position you might find yourself in, um, the law seems to be one of the largest stumbling blocks to seeing consistency from cover to cover. So um, I, I think you have to know how to look at it. And there are different ways to view the law, but I, I think the most helpful thing is to just know that it's been fulfilled in, in Jesus. And I'll touch more on that in a second. Um, there are some, there's some theological dispositions that would say that um, we can make sense of the law because we can break it down into three categories, um, right? Uh, moral, civil, and ceremonial. I think that's helpful, but I don't think it's the best answer always. And here's why. To to Israel, there, that kind of division didn't exist. All of the law had a moral nature to it because all of it, regardless of whether it was specifically ceremonial or particular to their society, there was a moral reason that the law was given. And, and so it's helpful to understand that some of those things were specific to a historical context. But to say that those things weren't moral law, I think isn't right because they were moral and were intended to to reveal a, a morality right in that day and age and so it's just, it just just seems inconsistent with what the the full story and the narrative of the old testament so so it is helpful but i, I think it's incomplete to think of the law that way um two and um i think there and this is a bit more nuanced there's a um a way to look at several types of law. Um, we have Mosaic law, which has no like authority when, and I'll clarify that in a second or, or no power over the Christian. Okay. Um, but then we also see in the new Testament, there's allusions to another kind of law and right. We see it in Paul's writings. He'll say the, the law of the spirit of life, Right? What is that? The law of the spirit of life. And then there's mentions, too, of the law of Christ. And I, th I think there is an eternal law of God that the Mosaic law reflects. But I don't think that they're always one and the same. Right? I think there are some eternal, uh, always true values and, and moral principles that because they are so close to the character and nature of God, they reflect it the most, right? And they are often found within the Mosaic law, but to say that the whole Mosaic law is that eternal law, I think would is not in keeping with what we even see in the New Testament. Um, but with regards specifically to Jewish law, 
Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He, he, and, and there are, it, there is an eternal nature even to it in that it always represents the morality of God, the father. And so that's why Jesus said, look, I didn't come to destroy it, but I did come to fulfill it. And, um, you know, we have these statements here, um, Romans 3.20 and Galatians 2.16, that no one will be justified by the law. And so it certainly served a purpose to reflect the character and nature of God to his people. And before Jesus, right, because we see in Colossians that the Son, Jesus, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God. And so through Jesus, we see God. Well, the law was a tutor, and the people of Israel only saw God through the law. And even if there was revelation from an angel or a prophet, it was always pointing back to the law because that was the revelation of God at the time. But it was incomplete, not that it didn't rightly reveal his character, but it could not justify anybody. And so um, it proved that we were in desperate need of rescue and that in our own strength, wisdom and knowledge, we will not live, you know, uh, up to the standards of God. And Jesus comes and he shows us who God is in the fullness, right? The scriptures say that Jesus is the fullness of him who fills all things, that we're part of that fullness, right? Uh, the church even. So I think, um, I think Jesus is always the answer for the Christian. And, um, you know, Paul uh, it, at the end of Romans says that love is the fulfillment of the law, because when we love God, we're not going to betray him. And if we rightly love God, we'll rightly love people, and thus we'll fulfill the law both towards God and towards uh, our neighbor. Ben, your mic's off. Oh, sorry. So it's helpful to think about the law in terms of within the covenants that it was given in, right? That right. The, the law of Moses presided over God's covenant with his people, Israel. And that covenant, the writer of Hebrews says, is, is getting ready to become obsolete, that, that the law was not given to make someone righteous. My dad always uses this image of a mirror, that the law is like a mirror. It shows us our blemishes, but you would never pull a mirror off of the wall and start scrubbing your face with it. It just shows you your need for cleansing from outside of yourself, yeah. uh, which has always been a helpful illustration for me, you know, and, and the law still is a tutor that leads us to Christ, even yeah. on this side of justification. This shows us sin yeah. is exceedingly sinful. Right. And that Absolutely. we have desperate need of salvation from outside of ourselves. Absolutely. And I think that's why we see commands in the New Testament, right? To And that's kind of what I think it, it, much of the New Testament is alluding to as far as this eternal law of God that has been concretized in some way in the Mosaic law, but even then the Mosaic law is incomplete, but we have this eternal law of Christ that always stands before us as both like judge and, uh, you know, redeemer, you know? And so it's a beautiful thing, but we can always cherish the character and nature of God and see him for who he truly is, even in the old Testament law. Um, but, but it's no longer our judge. The law is no longer our judge. And, and that's how it no longer has the same power over us. Right. Yeah. It's, it, the scriptures say, if a, if a law was given that could make you righteous, 
by your law keeping, then righteousness before God would indeed come by the law. Right. But the law was always a tutor to lead us to the only one who could keep the law in our place. And um, so that's, there's so much for, for further study for folks, Romans and Galatians. Uh, yeah. Big super time. formative on how to understand the law for a deeper dive. Yeah. And I, I think like my little parting word just on this section would be uh, Romans seven, right? Paul gives the illustration of marriage in that, because marriage is a covenant, and like you were speaking earlier to the fact that it was a particular covenant, a greater, a better, and uh, really a, a sweeter covenant has come in Jesus. And so we have died to the covenant of the law, and it no longer has power over us. Because when a person dies, their spouse is no longer their spouse, right? That covenant has been, uh, has been ended, and um, we have died to the law in Christ. And so... It does not have a say anymore, but we do belong to the one who is the covenant giver and we belong to him in covenant and he is holy and righteous. And he gave that law uh, to begin with as a tutor. And so uh, he still like he, he shapes his image in us through his spirit. And he shows us he shows us really in, in some regard, there's a greater weightiness in the new covenant, not that it's works based, but that we see greater depths of who God is and, and we get the privilege of being swept up in his love for us. And through love, he conforms us to his image and in love, we participate in his holiness. So. Amen. Hey, I found a note here in this um, resource, a guide to the Bible, just adding to, I think the final statement on the old Testament as scripture that we need today you referenced this earlier that the New Testament is always quoting the Old mm-hmm. Testament and referring to it as scripture. Right. This says Jesus and his disciples quote the Old Testament scriptures as divinely authoritative almost 300 times, but they never quote the Apocrypha as divinely authoritative. So it's, it's like, that is so, that is so huge when you're looking at okay what is scripture and what is not scripture and to your point not just to what do we say but what did what did Jesus say and affirm with his teachings as what constitutes scripture and if Jesus on the Emmaus road walked people through all the old testament scriptures showing how all of them point to him then they all are right. incredibly valuable for us for seeing Jesus today yeah absolutely and the thing that shook me, um, and I, I remember this feeling still, I remember being a believer for, I don't know, maybe three or four years. And I just, that it was like the Old Testament didn't resonate with me. And then just this kind of, I think the spirit illuminated to me that the early church only had, right? The New Testament was being written. Their scripture was the prophets. And if they could see, cherish, and love Jesus through the Old Testament scriptures, and I couldn't, then the problem wasn't with the word. It was with me, you know? Right. And so I just remember thinking, wow, like I'm so wrong. And it's really pride to think that like I don't need or I can't understand or or like it's irrelevant or, you know, the Old Testament scriptures are irrelevant now. And so, um, man, I, I think Jesus 
is all over the Old Testament. And there's always allusions and foreshadows in types of Christ throughout the scriptures. And it's this, it's this one grand drama, right? This, the, the biblical drama is so cohesive and, and really succinct in its purpose in revealing God in Christ. Hmm. This is what Paul wrote in Romans 15 to Christians in that day. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, right. we might have hope. And uh, so we need them. We need the whole, whole counsel of God. So let's, yes, let's shift gears and, and wrap up today by dealing with Levi's question from this past week. So to reframe, yeah. world leader on his deathbed, uh, it would be like the atrocities and crimes committed against his own people in the world, or people could look at it if, um, you know, leaders that in, in the world that may have committed genocide or other sure. crimes against humanity, and then they're on their deathbed. How should they pray? How should they think? How should they feel? How do you is there a tension there? Is there not? I think there is a tension. And I think that, if, uh, you know, to start with, a Christian must have humility in all things, um, particularly with something as weighty as death, because um, the tension is, is this. I think it is first necessary to know that um, death is weighty and it is pointing to eternality right it, it points to the eternal because we are our whole christian hope is a resurrection you know some to glory and some to eternal punishment and death marks the end of the period from for which they'll be judged right and so there is no chance to repent and believe on jesus after death right and you know there are some other Christian traditions that I that that might actually teach that, and I'd say there's no biblical evidence whatsoever for that kind of belief. That the scriptures are conclusive um, that after death um, there is no 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 other point in which you can repent, and so um, we have to realize that a person like you know a, a, some kind of fascist leader or a totalitarian, whatever. Um, we're going to just assume based on their actions and policies that they're not a believer. And so that they will spend eternity in, in hell, um, feeling the wrath of God. And so that's weighty because we all deserve it. And they have, they have rejected the God in whose image they were made. And any one of us could be in that position. So there must be humility. And furthermore, I think we see in Jesus a compassion and a love and a grievance over death in his humanity, right? He grieved over Lazarus. And I don't think it was just because they were friends, but I think Jesus was apprehended by the weight of death because of what it, because death is being, you know, being the result of sin. And, and I think that's why in first Timothy two, it, um, you know, we're, it, uh, Paul writes to Timothy that um, God desires all people to repent right? And that he doesn't want any to perish because his, his divine program for us all is that we would all participate in the community to come, like the, 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 the community of God at the consummation of all history, you know? And so 
Um, so that's one, that's like the one side of the, the spectrum. But then two, I think we can rightly celebrate the victory of justice over injustice, right? And, and that too is a foretaste of God uh, fully consummating the whole like trajectory of history in, uh, in making, you know, his, in uh, bringing his rule and his reign and heaven ruling on earth, you know, in the new, gonna make everything the new heavens right. and the new earth. Yeah, gonna right. Right one day. Right. Absolutely. There will no longer be injustice. There will no longer be pain. There will no longer be death or tears or fear for that matter. And so it, seeing justice conquer injustice is something that should whet our appetite, right? And be celebratory to an extent um, because it's a foretaste of what God is going to do eternally at the consummation of all of history. And so um, that, ten- and, and I think depending on who the person is and, and whatnot, you're, you're going to probably fall somewhere on the spectrum, right? Someone who's directly affected by a totalitarian or uh, a really unjust and, and, you know, inhumane leader is going to be a, a bit more celebratory, I would assume, you know, like those who were under Hitler's regime and suffered at the hand of Nazi Germany, uh, they were ecstatic, I'm sure, to finally be free. And I can't fault any Christian who felt who would feel that way, but um, but I think too when we're looking at this as far as like what's ideal, there's a tension, and we have to live within it. I think that same tension's there for somebody who's been abused and their abuser, you know, and yeah, so like a personal scale. So you have this. Where's your heart in Romans twelve? God says, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay. Leave justice into the hands of God." Don't take it into your own hands. And in doing so, it's it's almost a strange logic, right? He says, in doing so, you're going to heat burning coals on their head. It's going to be worse for them in the judgment if you don't take it into your own hands now. Right. And we're following a God who says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And while we Absolutely. were God's enemies, Christ died for us uh, and drew us near. So certainly attention there that one yeah. that we have to uh be introspective of our own hearts to ensure that we're not being vengeful in a way that dishonors entrusting judgment into god's hand while celebrating his final victory over all of his enemies absolutely yeah and there must be great humility with that and um one of the things that challenged me in was reading the Psalms and seeing uh, what are called imprecatory Psalms. And it's David praying that God's uh, judgment would be poured out on his enemies because David rightly saw that the judgment of the wicked is the same act as the salvation of the righteous. We see that with the flood, right? One act, but the judgment, or excuse me, the, the, the unrighteous are judged and the righteous are spared. And the same thing will be true uh, in the day of judgment. On that day, in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul writes, the unrighteous will be uh, cast aside to judgment and the righteous will be joined to Jesus for, for eternity. So, hmm. well, Praise the Lord. May he grant the gift of repentance um, to people that don't deserve it while Absolutely. there's still time. Um, 
So a final shift of gears, man, give us a random thought or fact to close out our day. Sure. Uh, flamingos are not born pink, but they become pink over time from eating shrimp. <laughs> All right. Hey, that's your second bird fact out of three. So we'll yeah, no, I need to shift gears in my own, but that one just came to me. Yeah, no, that's perfect. All right. So eat more shrimp. Sure. All right. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for joining us.